everybody. Welcome back to Palm Peeps. We're very excited to be here with another episode. We've had a bunch of great topics recently, so thank you for listening in. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter or give us a like and a comment wherever you're listening to your podcasts. And as always, this is the best part of my week. So I'm very excited to be here again with Monty, my partner in crime for another episode. Monty, how you doing? Hey, Firth, doing well and excited to bring another top consult series your way. And today we're going to be talking about pulmonary nodules, which I know is a very common consult question that trainees ask. And then from a fellow standpoint, a very common consult fellows are going to be getting. And I know it can be very daunting initially to manage at first, so we're going to try to walk it through it today through several cases. And so we're so excited to have some help today, Firf, and we're going to be joined uh, by two amazing physicians from MedStar Washington Hospital Center in D.C. And I'm honored to first introduce Dr. Jessica Wong-Mamoli. Jessica is a board-certified in pulmonary disease, critical care medicine, as well as internal medicine. She's the director of bronchoscopy and interventional pulmonary as well as the Associate Fellowship Program Director for Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine at the MedStar Washington Hospital Center. Dr. Wong Wamoli received her medical degree from the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, and she completed her residency at MedStar Washington Hospital Center, and her fellowship training uh, was completed at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. So definitely some different places that you've been to, Jessica, and I'm sure all great training along the way. We're just really to have you join us today and hear your perspective. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Next, we have Nick Gioni. Nick is a third-year pulmonary and critical care fellow and the current chief of pulmonary and critical care, or the chief fellow of pulmonary and critical care at MedStar Washington Hospital Center in D.C. About to finish up, right? We only have a few weeks left in the medical academic year, so very exciting. He'll be joining MedStar Baltimore Hospitals uh, as faculty after this at Union Memorial, Good Samaritan, and Franklin Square, where he'll primarily be an intensivist with some inpatient pulmonary as well. He completed his internal medicine residency at Mercy Catholic Medical Center in uh, Philadelphia, and he was serving as the chief internal medicine resident there as well. So chiefdom becomes you. I'm sure there'll be more chiefships uh, in your future. Uh, and his specific interests include mechanical ventilation, POCUS, and medical education. And that's how we got connected. He is a long, he wants us to add that he's a long-term and long-suffering Philadelphia Flyers fan. So we can all root for him if we can. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, peeps. Really excited to do this episode with you all. Thanks, Nick. I'm glad you're going to be uh, at least close to me in Baltimore. If I have questions, definitely know I can reach out to you. And I feel like Firth gave you the fastest promotion in history. Chief Chief of Medicine and Chief of the Division already. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we should let but, the Chiefs know at Washington Hospital Center that I've been crowned Chief of Pulmonary. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think about that. Yeah. But I'm, I'm sure that's in your future as well. But before we get started with our episode today, which we're excited about, just want to do a quick disclaimer that this podcast is not meant for medical advice. Our opinions are our own and do not reflect our employers. And the case references today are HIPAA compliant with some details that may have been changed to protect the identity of our patient. Absolutely. So we are going to be talking about, as we said, lung nodules, focusing mostly on solitary pulmonary nodules. And as Monty said, with a whole new uh, crop of fellows coming in, this is a common consult, common clinic question, and actually pretty scary. It seems benign at first, but then when you don't know what you're doing, you're like, what am I going to do with it? So we're going to give you a good framework and hopefully work through this. We have our first consult of the day to kick off the conversation. We have a 33-year-old woman who came to the emergency department with acute onset shortness of breath. 
She states that she'd been in her normal state of health until the morning of presentation when she developed shortness of breath at rest as well as chest pain. She does report a non-productive cough over the last few weeks, which she feels may be contributing to the chest pain. She also has a history of asthma as a child, but without any exacerbations or need for maintenance therapies since she was a child. She reports wheezing when she gets sick with a cold, but that is pretty infrequent. The ED team sent off an initial workup, including a D-dimer, which is elevated, and she underwent a CT angiogram of the chest for concern of possible PE. On the CT, there was no PE, but the radiologist did call a two millimeter indeterminate right upper lobe pulmonary nodule. And so pulmonary ended up being consulted for this. Nick, I'm sure you get a lot of consults like this. I'm interested to know your approach for a patient like this, where there really is a call of a pulmonary nodule, a bit small, but they have some symptoms and you want to know how to approach them. Yeah. So I think for me, starting off as a first year fellow, I had a tough time. Where do I start and where do I go? It's easy to read the CT scan and then follow the guidelines, but in your mind's eye, what is your algorithm? So I'm sure Dr. Wong has suffered through many of my presentational pulmonaries going through my thought process and redirecting me to think more critically about what's really the question that we're being asked. Pulmonary nodules are ubiquitous and more commonly seen now that CTs are done more often. And it's better to have a working framework of what you're, the steps you're going to go through to work this nodule up. Essentially, the framework boils down into a couple of different components. So the three things we're really considering are the patient's demographics and medical history, for which we are focusing mainly on their risk of pulmonary disease as one. Number two would be the characteristics of the nodule itself. And there are some telling characteristics if the nodule is something we should be worried about or we should not be worried about. And then lastly, why are we looking at this nodule? Is this a, a lung cancer screening nodule or is this to rule in or rule out some other cause, whether it's infectious cause or a systemic inflammatory disease or an autoimmune process? One of the more important pieces is that patients get these CT scan reads and they Google, what is a pulmonary nodule? And they will come across lung cancer as a diagnosis. And a lot of times patients just in clinic last week, a patient had a CT scan. There was like maybe a one centimeter pulmonary nodule, not overly concerning, but in the CT read in bold or um, in uppercase letters, it said rule out carcinoma. And that's all the patient sort of latched onto. So when I asked the patient why, why she come to see us in clinic today, she said, I have a lung mass and I might have cancer. So always jump into sort of the very worst. Lung cancer before 40 is rare. The incidence goes up between the ages of 40 to 80. And I know that there's been quite a few cases that Dr. Wong and I have seen recently with younger patients, even in their 30s, that have had lung cancer. It's really our job as pulmonologists to evaluate these nodules critically and in some cases, you know, rule out cancer with some certainty to give the patients some peace of mind. Yeah, thanks so much, Nick, and totally agree. I think everyone thinks the worst, specifically when it's concerned around cancer. And I think you really did a great point of just bringing up the epidemiology of lung cancer. And we recently did a fellow's case files with Boston University where we had Drs. Kearney, Rudon, and Steeling join us. We discussed lung cancer screening and some health inequities and the work being done by BU to help address this. And I think coming back to our consult question, Nick, you oftentimes, you get the consult, you're going to have imaging that's provided to you right away because that's what initially prompts the consult question. But in cases like this, I know the patient's history is going to be really important when developing the differential. 
So Nick, what history questions or must ask questions in these type of scenarios? The things I ask aren't really anything different than my sort of normal history questions. So tobacco history, family history um, of cancer, personal history of cancer, any exposures, any comorbid lung diseases. And once you have this background and baseline, then you can start determining what is our pretest probability of cancer in this patient, given the history, maybe the physical exam findings and the CT findings. The one thing that's really important and that I try to do a lot is really dig down and see if there's any previous imaging. And being in DC, there's a lot of hospitals around us, including you know, Hopkins if you go north, Inova if you go south, Georgetown, GW. And a lot of patients go between these hospitals and get different CT scans, and we can sometimes access that. And depending on how long before, temporally, we might be able to see either the growth or not growth of the nodule in question. So it's really important to dig down and find old scans that we can, and that will also give us some information about how likely or not likely this nodule is concerning for cancer. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Nick. I always break it down in my head for that of who's the patient, right? So the standard questions that you were saying that are part of your investigation for them, you mentioned the epidemiology at first, so who's their age and what's their cancer risk? They have family history, they have smoking history, and comorbid diseases I need to think about. But then what's this nodule's history, This the personal history of the nodule? And that can only be answered by uh, prior imaging if they've had it. And if they haven't, then we have some things that we can talk about. But if they have, then we follow those characteristics along. So I've been mentioning as we've been going characteristics of the nodule, Jessica, I know that you've probably looked at more nodules than all of us combined. And so I think it's important for us to have a framework of how we're actually describing them. So can you tell us about what characteristics you're looking for when you're evaluating a nodule to help us distinguish between benign or malignant or low risk or high risk or anything along those lines? Yeah, there's always things on a nodule that push you, make you think, oh, maybe it's more, maybe it's less likely to be malignant. Um, but always remember that it's always just a picture. So as we always say, right, tissue is the issue. So, um, but sometimes there are things that can make you go, hmm, maybe not so much, maybe, or maybe more. Um, big thing is location, um, especially in smokers, right? We often see them in the upper lobes and more predominantly in the um, right upper lobe for some reason. Um, and, you know, about 70% are in that location. And we know that because that's often where we have to go when we're trying to biopsy them. And then there's the appearance, right? So a lot of people pay, put a lot of weight into what it actually looks like. Is it smooth walled? Is it spiculated? Is there some ground glass around it? Is it ground glass? All of it is ground glass. And some of that is related to what it means radiographically to what it means pathologically. And that's probably true more for the adenocarcinomas that tend to be a little bit more ground glass. And there's some predictive value to that. So the more smooth polygonal, meaning there's sharp edges on the sides of it, that tends to portend more benign pathology. The ground glass, while we sometimes want to say that it also tends to be more benign, we also know that those could be some of the slow growing ones. When you see the speculations and the pleural retractions, that's what we um, worry about a little bit. And then the ones that have a speculated nodule with some ground glass around it, those sometimes are even more concerning because that could mean there's some angio invasion and that's why you get the ground glass around it. There's some things that are helpful 
for benignity, things like calcium and this popcorn appearance. And those typically then make you think of teratomas or hamartomas, which are usually benign. And then size, right? So size is a big thing. Sometimes when they're itty bitty like a nodule, you're not even really going to know whether or not it's polygonal or spiculated because it's so small. And when it's that small, there's not a whole lot I can do for it now anyways. It's when they get bigger that you start to get more concerned, right? So lesions that are uh, less than a centimeter a little make you a little bit more reassured. That one to two centimeters, you start to get a little bit more nervous. When you're above three centimeters, it's no longer a nodule. It's now a pulmonary mass. And those are, you know, your top three differentials for a mass are going to be cancer. Um, size makes a difference. And then... As you may or may not know, there's all these risk calculators, right? There's the Mayo Risk Calculator. There's a Brock. You can look at the British Thoracic Society. You can look at what the ACCP tells you to do. You can look at what Fleischmann tells you to do. So there's all these different ways to assess and decide what to do. But these risk calculators are pretty easy to just plug some numbers in. They they work depending on what the numbers you put in. So the size, the pretest, pro- they already taken some of your pretest probability. Some of them take in the location, smoking history, presence of emphysema, speculation, family history, things like that. But they're all good tools to help you with your risk assessment of the patient. Oh, that's great. For, I have to say benignity is definitely the word of the day. I love that. <laughs> that word is not word is not thrown around uh, often enough. Uh, th- that's fantastic. I feel like we're really building up to a framework as we approach these patients. You're approaching the patient, then you're approaching the nodule, and then you're taking all these factors in and you're going to use some risk assessment tool, as you said, to guide what our decisions are. And to just be explicit about it, the decisions we're really usually deciding between are, is this something we can just follow up? This is something that means no follow-up is something we need to follow up and then we have to decide how often and then for how long we want to watch. Do we need more uh, testing or will it be a helpful additional test like a PET scan, which has its own limits of sensitivity and detection? Or in the most extreme case, do we just have to jump right to tissue sampling? And you mentioned often having to go after upper lobe nodules or bronchoscopy and even open biopsies if we get there with a high risk enough test. We mentioned those guidelines, and to be specific, I think the most common used ones are the Mayo Predictor, the CHEST, the British Thoracic Society, and then certainly the Fleischner Society guidelines draw often quoted in a lot of our uh, imaging reports. Yeah, thanks, Verf. And I think those are some great guidelines to, to use. And I know that there's definitely some institutional variants on which guidelines are preferred in certain instances, but I think all great resources and at least as a, to have as a starting point. And sometimes I think it's nice to share them with patients or if they see the report, they're going to see Fleischner guidelines. And as Nick said, they're going to be quick to look them up. So I think it's important that we can at least talk about what's currently recommended um, based on the various guidelines with our patient. And going back to our patient, Nick, so we just did some great talking. Jessica added, just what are we looking for in the nodule and how to approach it? But to come back, so we have a 33-year-old woman with a potential history of asthma and no other risk factors that we're aware of at this time, presenting with cough, dyspnea, and chest pain, who was found to have a two-millimeter upper lobe nodule on CT. So Nick, walk us through the next steps and recommendations that you would provide for this patient. Yeah, so the next steps we were first looking at the CT scan and what's described as a two millimeter nodule in the right upper lobe. 
we live in America, so two millimeters in someone's mind's eye might be difficult to think about or conceptualize, but realize that two millimeters is incredibly small. And if you think about what it's akin to, it's about the tip of a pencil or a crayon. I usually, I, when the patients are worried about pulmonary nodules, I am quick to pull out my pen and say, this is what is in the right upper lobe. Look how small it is. And usually when you really put into context and let the patient see the size that you're talking about, it really swages a lot of their um, concern. So after interviewing the patient more, she really seemed low risk. There was no personal history of cancer. There was no family history of cancer. She was a non-smoker. All And the side, including the size being two millimeters, all these things are on our side that it's going to be something that we are not going to have to worry about. The appearance of the nodule, and as Dr. Wong mentioned earlier, as it gets smaller and smaller, it's hard to really parse out if what it looks like or the characteristics because it's so small, but it didn't appear to be concerning. So we usually use the Fleischner guidelines and we plug this into the guideline recommendation and less than six millimeters, a low-risk nodule, low-risk patient, we can stop following it. That being said, after talking to a lot of patients and even having some personal history with lung nodules within my own sort of family, some patients prefer to have more peace of mind getting a follow-up CT, knowing that it hasn't grown or has even gone away. And that is a shared decision-making that you have with the patient. As for this patient, what it sounded like she had was a chest cold. She had some runny nose, maybe fever, some shortness of breath. She did have this questionable underlying asthma that we worked up further as well. So we chalked it up to her underlying illness and just found this nodule incidentally because of her, because of her presentation, her shortness of breath and her chest pain and the ER's decision to go with forward with a CT scan. Yeah, Nick, I love that you pointed out that based on the patient and the nodule factor, this is a low-risk patient, low-risk nodule, and so they, there was not recommended any follow-up, but all of these decisions should be a shared decision-making model. And so, as you said, people's own personal history comes in and chatting with patients, you talk about all the options and there's often a range of options. So thanks for pointing that out. Thank you, Nick and Jessica, for walking us through this case. So we had a, a low-risk nodule in a low-risk patient, but we know that we're getting more consults throughout the day. So we have another one coming in, and we have a 67-year-old male with a past medical history of ischemic cardiomyopathy, chronic systolic heart failure with an EF of 10 to 15%, who's had an AICD placement in the past. Other comorbidities include type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, stage three CKD, as well as prostate cancer, post seed implantation, who's presented with acute decompensation of his heart failure and cardiogenic shock. He was su successfully managed for this throughout his hospitalization and is now being worked up by the advanced heart failure team. And as part of that, he got a chest CT, which is now showing a right upper lobe six millimeter nodule. So pulmonary is being consulted for further recs regarding the nodule and specifically our concern for cancer. So Nick, this is obviously a different scenario than our first consult, and I'm interested. You did such a great job of walking through that first one. I'm hoping that you can um, do the same about your approach for this patient. Yeah, definitely. So with this patient, sort of the same approach, right? So we think about who the patient is, what are the characteristics of the nodule, and why we're looking at the nodule. And then essentially the question we're really trying to answer is what is the risk of cancer here in this patient? This patient's obviously a lot different. There's a lot more wild cards in this patient's history, given that he has a history of prostate cancer and 
um, other comorbidities. Going through our mental model, when I interview this patient, I'm obviously going to ask more questions about his prostate cancer history, the follow-up that he's had with either urologists or other physicians regarding that, smoking history, family history. Radiographically, when I look at the report and then the CT scan, there weren't a lot of sort of buzzwords that were popping in and or the and the appearance didn't really make me overly concerned that this lesion was going to be malignant, but obviously his history of prostate cancer changes everything. So I dug in a bit more and asked if he had any other previous CT scans or chest x-rays or any other scans, any other hospitals. He wasn't really sure. One of the things that I like to do and take pride in is actually really hunting down old CT scans. And my advice would be to all the learners out there is look at every scan that you can for yourself first, but also look at other scans, even if it's not specifically what you're looking for. And what I mean by that is if we're looking for a chest CT, but all we have is the chest, ab, and pelvis, oftentimes the slices are up pretty high and sometimes they'll, they might include what you're looking for. And in other disease processes, such as ILD, these older CT scans can give you a basis for the lung architecture that you might be interested in. So that would just be uh, a tip that I have for the learners and the new fellows is look at every CT scan that you could possibly get your hands on, even if it's not what is specifically in question. So the patient told me that he had prostate cancer about 15 years ago. He had been treated, as we mentioned. He was following with, following with the urologist uh, yearly and received a PSA yearly. And the most recent one had been about, at that time, three to four months ago and wasn't worrisome. He was a never smoker. He had no personal history of lung cancer. He His father did have prostate cancer, but he passed from that when he was a bit elderly in his 80s and was generally healthy up until that point. And like I said before, he wasn't sure if he had any other chest imaging, but neither was his wife. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to get my hands on uh, any old imaging. Yeah, thanks, Nick. I, I think you know taking that same approach that you're looking about and talking to this patient, getting his personal history to determine the risk factors that he has, and then trying to get a nodule history and see if we can track anything else down. And I like your point about the abdomen pelvis, especially for you know ILD. Obviously, there's advantages on a right protocol study, but also sometimes like a CT neck or a CTA of the chest now, since there's a lot of coronaries, if you really just want to see nodule stability, those can be really helpful. And sometimes on the non-lung ones, they won't even call it. If it's a CTA coronary, they've gotten much better at that, but sometimes you're looking at yourself is the only way to go. So similar to our first patient, this patient doesn't have a history of smoking or a family history of lung cancer. He does have this personal history of having a, a prostate cancer. Sounds like it's been well-treated and well-managed, but always raise a, a red flag a little bit for us to consider. He is also older. He's 67 years old. Uh, so Jessica, some of his other comorbidities and the size that this nodule is a little bit larger, six millimeters in the right upper lobe have us thinking a bit about what this could be. How are you thinking about this patient and the risk assessment in the framework that we talked about already? Yeah, so we've touched on these different risk calculators. And I think after you do this for a while, you, you, you don't always stick it in the calculator unless you want to document like, oh, their risk by Brock was whatever. But because you're already taking all this information that you're putting into these risk calculators and coming up with your risk assessment anyways, and actually, when you look at a lot of these different characters, what it do based on risk, 
it's a really big range for these intermediate lung nodules. Depending on if you're looking at ACCP or BTS, that intermediate risk can be anywhere from 5 to 10% up to 65%. So you have a huge number. So someone like him who may be Brock at 2% and then Mayo at 21%, they're all, okay, what do you do? So then you have to do a little bit more thought in your head about what, what, how high do you really think this patient is? It is an upper low. He does have a past medical history, but he's also got this terrible heart failure. So maybe it's just from heart failure. So there's a lot of things that can sway you one way or the other. And sometimes it's not straightforward. This is absolutely what you do. Even for these intermediate nodules, depending on who you look at, they give you different guidelines, right? Fleischer is going to tell you if it's six to eight millimeters, depending on if they're high or low risk, you do um, PET scan versus um, biopsy. Whereas BTS, it's 10 to 50%, you go down this algorithm. And then the ACCP, whose guidelines are a little bit old, so we're, that's a whole different story, but they don't quite align with Fleischner. So who do you listen to? Who do you follow? And that's a little bit where some of the um, multidisciplinary aspect of what we do for lung nodules comes into play, depending on which model you go with and about where this guy is certainly reasonable to do follow-up scans at six millimeters. I usually use Fleischner and that recommendation is usually, um, about a repeat at six to 12 months. So that's where you're looking now. If you think, well, maybe it could be because of his prostate cancer history, you could opt to do a little bit sooner at about three months. Three months is a good range where if you're a little bit more concerned, it gives you enough time to see a change, but hopefully not enough time for it to be a huge change. Yeah. Yeah, that was great, Jessica. And I think a really great way to think of things. And Firf and I are going to be waiting for the day for the Wong Mamoli calculator to come out. Stay tuned for that. We're going to be using that one, I know, all the time. But I, I think you bring up some great points to consider for this patient who has an intermediate nodule. And there's cases like this where I've had or I've been on teams and consulting and it's, what do we do next? And the idea of a PET scan gets brought up um, by someone. And I'm hoping you can just share, what is your approach to PET scans? Um, when are they helpful and when could they be unhelpful? You know, we have to worry about false positive, false negatives, but uh, given your expertise, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and would that be appropriate for this pa specific patient? Yeah, so pets are always a, a, a topic of discussion. We talk about pets all the time, especially in our tumor board. Do we get one? Do we not get one? Is it going to tell us anything? If it has hypermetabolic activity, does that increase or decrease your suspicion for what it is? And so when you see it in guidelines, ultimately you have to ask yourself, depending on what result you get, is that going to change what you decide to do? So if you get a hazy nodule that's about six millimeters, is a PET going to be helpful? It can be because if it's got positivity and it's got really big positivity, then you get a little bit more nervous. But if it's low grade or not really not really hypermetabolic, then you say, it still could be, but it's also still small. So that the size makes a difference. And most nuclear medicine people will say that a nodule that's eight millimeters is big enough to get metabolic activity if there's going to be metabolic activity. And if it's less than that, and there's no metabolic activity, that either may mean that the nodule doesn't actually have activity or it's too small. You have to understand what that means. And again, like all imaging, it's still just an image because not everything that's positive on a pet means malignancy. Could still be inflammation. 
could still be scar, although those tend to be a little bit less active. Could be infection, indolent infection, uh, non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections being a big one. Could be sarcoid. So there's a lot of different things that can give pet activity. So again, you have to um, weigh that with what your suspicion is that it's malignant. And so sometimes it really does come down to going to tumor board and saying, hey, do we think that this is going to help us when we're looking at this? And then saying, okay, if it's a negative PET scan, what do we do with that? Or if it's a positive PET or low, low level activity on a PET, how, what is that going to do for what we do for the patient? And so I, I actually use that a lot and we talk about it a lot. We're doing a PET not for the actual nodule, but really to see anything anywhere else. So is there another target? Is there some other area that we think this could be coming from, especially if you're thinking, hey, maybe it's metastatic disease from a prostate? Um, could it be, you know, that the prostate's going to light up like mad too, or somewhere else in the abdomen that you don't necessarily see? So it's helpful for that reason as well. Yeah, absolutely. That that extra thoracic disease or spreading within the thorax can be super helpful if you see that on PET scan. And this is uh, helping building out our framework of where we're going. So I love it. We have a patient, we approach them, we're getting their history, we're assessing the nodule and its characteristics. Is it solid? Is it ground glass? Does it have other concerning characteristics? We're using our risk calculators to give us initial recommendations, but then we're always taking our own input. And then if we need more help, then we go to a tumor board or a thoracic surgery board. And I find those conversations so helpful. I've oftentimes thought I was going to do one thing. And then people have said, we're probably going to biopsy this no matter what. Why don't we go ahead and biopsy it? Or vice versa. We're not going to biopsy it no matter what. So why don't we skip the pet and we'll get a cat skin in six months. So thanks for bringing that up. Oh, we have a new console coming in. It sounds like we have a third console of the day. This is a 66-year-old man who has a past medical history of tobacco use, COPD, hypertension, and prior IV drug use, who presents the emergency department with acute shortness of breath and was initially felt to have a COPD exacerbation down there. He was given bronchodilators and steroids, as well as being started on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. He was eventually weaned off of this and was able to tolerate nasal cannula. But as a part of his initial workup, he underwent a CAT scan for the possibility of PE or infection or other thing that was leading to his exacerbation. And on that, he had a new, as far as we know, left upper lobe spiculated nodule that was 1.3 centimeters. And when looked back to decide if it was new or not, it looks like this was not there in 2019. So four years ago, prior imaging. Pulmonary is consulted for this new legion as well as management in the COPD. Uh, and we have to decide what we're going to do. So Nick, can you walk us through what you're thinking when you get this consult from the emergency department? Yeah. So this is the patient where we need to buckle in and really get things moving. And this patient sort of plugged in to either inpatient care or outpatient follow for sure. The size, the history, the fact that it's new and the speculation makes me worry that this could be malignant for sure, or at the very least needs very close follow-up. So the question becomes, what do we do? How high is our concern? So I think we can all agree, given what we've discussed thus far, that we should probably be pretty concerned, or at least the most concerned that we've been um, up to this point. And depending on this CT scan, should we think about an inpatient workup or outpatient workup? And how do we get these things done? Question becomes, where is it located exactly? Is it 
very peripheral? Is it not really peripheral? Is there an airway going to it? Are there other things in the chest that might make us worry that this might have spread? So is there any sort of lymphadenopathy in the thoracic cavity where we can start discussing, would this be amenable to something like an IR percutaneous biopsy, or should I be presenting this patient to Dr. Wong and discussing, should we do a navigational bronchoscopy with EBUS for staging, or should we forego all that, have this patient follow up as an outpatient and take our work up from there? Depending on local expertise will depend on what you're able to provide the patient because the one thing that I try to remember a lot is that we're in a an area with a lot of expertise, but throughout the country, there might not be as much expertise readily available. So we need to sort of think about that depending on where we're practicing. And those are definitely some really great points that you bring up, Nick. And I think all the four of us um, on today, I think are all concerned for malignancy in this patient and would advocate for further evaluation and tissue sampling. But you bring up some great things that, as well about the feasibility of tissue sampling based on location. And you alluded to the importance of staging. And Jessica, I want to go back to you as our IP expert um, joining us today. I'm wondering if you could discuss the pros and cons of percutaneous sampling versus endobronchial ultrasound sampling, as well as some of the implications for obtaining tissue. That's always a good topic of discussion, and it always depends on, again, I think what Nick said is where you have, where you are and what you have. If you are in a place that has an excellent interventional radiology department and they're really good and you don't really have someone who can do some of the advanced diagnostic bronchoscopy, then you know what? You do what you can and you get a CT guided biopsy and you get a diagnosis and you use the information that you have. But if you are in a place that has the benefit of having someone who could do advanced bronchoscopy, I would recommend probably utilizing that and getting those people involved because on, based on the data, the diagnostic yield of a CT-guided biopsy for a peripheral lung nodule across the board is pretty good. It's about 90%, which is excellent. But the risk of uh, pneumothorax is also pretty high. And depending on where the nodule is located, more central if there's surrounding um, emphysema, um, COPD, if there is uh, any evidence of interstitial lung disease or lung damage, that increases the risk of pneumothorax because that CT guided biopsy, that needle tra traverses a lot of quote unquote normal lung tissue, which then increases your risk of pneumothorax. So it can be as high as 40%, which is pretty impressive. And then counter that with a bronchoscopic biopsy. Uh, if the lesion is more central, if there's an airway located uh, that sort of takes you right into the lesion, uh, that increases the diagnostic yield. But even with some of these advanced diagnostic bronchoscopy tools nowadays, robotic bronchoscopy, ultrasound, uh, electromagnetic navigation, even with those, uh, most data gives you a diagnostic yield of somewhere about 70%. And we're pushing that up a little bit now with some of the robotic techniques. It's just not played out yet. We don't have enough data to really show that. But So we're getting closer to that 90%. But the big contrast to a CT-guided biopsy and the reason why bronchoscopic biopsy might be beneficial as a first good first step, if you have it available, is that the risk of pneumothorax is very low. We're at about 1% to 2% when we do transbronchial biopsy. And in addition to that, at the same time, you can do mediastinal staging with linear EBUS. So that's the benefit of that. And then you can also potentially put fiducials out there for targeted therapy or even to help with surgical resection in the future if uh, cancer is diagnosed. In our practice, I tend to say if I think we can reach something, we do a bronchoscopic biopsy first 
because then we stage and and potentially diagnose. Hopefully, the goal, the holy grail in the future is that we diagnose, we stage, and potentially treat all at the same time, which would be great for patients. But that may be a few years down the line. We're working on it, but it's a few years down the line. And then the other thing I think you touched on was some molecular testing. It used to be that we would just be like, let's be as least invasive as possible. And pathology was okay with that. But now with a lot of the advanced molecular testing that we have to do on tissue samples, sometimes it behooves us then to get as much as we can while we're in there. So if there's a lymph node that has positivity, we get a lot of samples out of that. With peripheral lung nodules, sometimes it's tough because we get limited samples. Sometimes we only get positivity on a brush. But And sometimes we have to go back in and re-biopsy one way or the other, depending on what we have. But the molecular testing does become more uh, important, but typically more so with the more advanced disease. With some limited disease, if the patient can be resected, then yeah, molecular testing is helpful potentially later on if it's um, recurrent. But at the onset, if we can just resect it and be done, then it's not quite as important. It becomes more important with advanced disease, in which case some of the tissue ends up being in the lymph nodes, which is much more easily accessible than just a solitary pulmonary nodule with nothing else. You touched on so many things and that how important it is to really think about the patient and what your pretest probability is and what you're worried about when you're deciding the modality that you're going to use. Because if you have some concern about the lymph nodes and you have an EBIS probe in there, you can take a look, you can sample, you can get a lot more information than just guided strike the CT scan. And we will look forward to the day when you can also treat at the same time. That sounds pretty cool. So <laughs> maybe a, a future episode. So this has been fantastic. We've been talking about nodules. We talked about a low risk nodules, ones that are a little bit more intermediate risk, and then a high risk solid nodule like this, and the importance of considering the knowledge, nodule size, the accompanying characteristics, and the patient characteristics when plugging into our calculators and making our decision on the next uh, steps. But no pulmonary nodule talk would be complete without mentioning subsolid pulmonary nodules, some of these more nebulous imaging appearances that we didn't have any cases of today. So Nick, I'm curious how you've approached these types of consults or these types of patients in clinic during your training. That's a great question. And I think my first sort of voyage into that was I needed to realize that, wow, there's a whole nother subset of nodules that I have to think about. Subsolid nodules are different than the solitary pulmonary nodule, basically because of what they can represent and their characteristics. So recently, in the last sort of 10 years, there's been a renaissance with subsolid nodules due to the classification change and nomenclature. I think the important thing to realize with subsolid nodules is that they can grow very slowly and they can undergo some transformation along the way of their growth that can raise our suspicion for cancer. The characteristic of these nodules is that they are incredibly slow growing and their doubling time can be on the magnitude of three to five years. So you need to really follow them for a long time to give the patient uh, peace of mind that it's not something that they have to be worried about. Especially with subsolid nodules, there could be multiple pulmonary nodules involved in, in this as well. And this wasn't a discussion about multiple pulmonary nodules. I think we're going to do that in a different episode. But the terminology can be confusing because they're, they could be referred to as ground glass opacities, ground glass nodules, and these terms are often used interchangeably. There are some things that would raise our suspicion for 
development of cancer of a ground glass nodule, particularly if it develops a solid component. In that situation, there are guidelines specifically. There's flushing guidelines that we usually follow to give us some guideline recommendations about when we should either jump to tissue sampling or go down the PET scan route or just get another follow-up CT. Yeah, thanks, Nick. I think Jessica mentioned earlier too about the ground glass nodules that have a solid component and we worry about surrounding angio invasion, certainly something we always get concerned about. And yeah, I always found it interesting that you have this nodule and then all of a sudden your recommendations go from, hey, an optional CT at a year or two, a follow-up at 12 and then maybe another follow-up at 24 months, so very long-term follow-up. So Jessica, I'm just curious if you can round out our conversation with follow-up recommendations. If you have ground glass components or nodules, how it changes the intervals and timing for that you're going to be looking at for your patients? Yeah. So if it's pure ground glass, um, that's a little bit different than the solid with the ground glass component, the part solid ones. Most of the recommendations when you're looking at part solid nodules are looking at the solid component and using that as your um, what helps you direct what you do. In the past, it's always been two-year follow-up. The most recent Fleischner 2017 guidelines don't give that delineation. So it's a little bit hard sometimes to know how long do you go for. But for the most part, I think the, the accepted belief is that two years is about as much as you need to do for solid nodules. It's the ground glass ones that, again, become a little bit more confusing because they do tend to be more slow growing. So sometimes it does take a few years to really see a huge difference in size. And so because of that, the the sort of length of time that you have to follow ground glass nodule is five years for the most part. But the first time you get a repeat in some of those ground glass nodules is a little bit sooner because of the idea that some of these could just be inflammation. And so at three to six months, you get a repeat. And if it's gone, you're good. So you get the repeat. And if it's stable, then you go out. And sometimes you go out for two years before you get a repeat. That makes people a little bit nervous. But again, based on the fact that we know these are relatively slow growing, you can feel pretty comfortable about that. These ground glass adenocarcinomas tend to be a really tough topic because there's a lot of uh, controversy surrounding it when it comes to what you do about them. Because some people say, with cancer, of course, you have to treat it. But there's the other side of that where slow growing, are they going to, are your patients going to die or have morbidity from some other thing? And do you put them through the morbidity of treatment of a cancer that may not affect them? But that's a topic for a whole nother group of people, I think. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> We're going to uh, definitely have to have y'all back to help with that one. And I know we did a top consult episode today, but this is the first time Plum Peeps has had guests from MedStar Washington Hospital Center. And Firf and I are wondering if you would just tell us a little bit about your program. So Nick, I'll start with you. What has been some things that you've enjoyed during fellowship and training at MedStar Washington Hospital Center? I think the, so coming from med school and residency in Philadelphia, I didn't know what to expect at MedStar Washington Hospital Center. And the thing that I was very surprised by was how much community there is around us, meaning we have a lot of um, fellows from other programs that sort of rotate through. We have a, a longstanding relationship with places like NIH, Walter Reed, Georgetown, even Hopkins. So a lot of the fellows that either train here or near here end up close by. So there's a, a really big community that is all inclusive. And I've learned a lot from the docs sort of all around. The other thing is that and I know probably from 
your work with the fellowship is that we have the summer and winter education blocks that started years ago from the inception from sort of our small community between Washington Hospital Center, NIH, Walter Reed, that has grown into this very large consortium of fellowships and docs that give lecturing both in the summer and the winter time to first year fellows. There's echo and focus education. There's a very stringent and well put together mechanical ventilator education series that's headed up by Dr. Lee at NIH. So that was something that I didn't even know coming to fellowship and has been a really great surprise and really enjoyed my time at hospital center, worked with everyone there. And um, so just really appreciate the opportunity. That's awesome. And yeah, I think so important. This is the second year, you know, Hopkins is going to participate in the summer education block. And I just know that the, the fellows have just enjoyed getting to really meet the community of trainees in the Baltimore DC area and also getting to learn from experts as well. So looking, I know we're, our fellowship's looking forward to that. And with that, Jessica, wondering if you could share a couple of things that you've um, enjoyed with the fellowship or your experience at MedStar Washington Hospital Center. Yeah, so I have a long history here, longer than sometimes I want to admit, but I've always liked the type of patients that we see here. That's always been the big thing that drew me back here, having been to a few different places. Miami was similar in that it was a lot of the urban poor patient population, um, which this was similar to. And I think connecting with those patients really, um, to me, is rewarding. Um, having done pulmonary at MUSC, it was a totally different world. And while I loved it there, it was a totally different world. Um, and so coming back was, um, I, I liked, again, just being able to see all the different pathology and really just to see a bunch of different kinds of patients. We see the urban poor, we see the rural poor, we see the hoity-toity of DC society because we're the biggest hospital in the DC, in DC. So we get it all, which is, I think for me, what makes it fun to be here because it keeps you on your toes and you can't get bored seeing what we see. Absolutely. This has been a great episode. We've talked about solitary pulmonary nodules in a great system. We hope that you've taken away some learning points and a good framework for approaching these patients. We always like to wrap up with a learning or takeaway point from each person. So mine, I think, is something, Jessica, that you mentioned about the PET scans that most people will say eight millimeters is big enough to have some idea about the metabolic activity and that less than that, a negative PET scan may mean that it's uh, just too small and that you don't have good resolution or sensitivity enough to take a look at it. Uh, Monty, any takeaway that you have? Yeah, I feel like I wrote down a lot of notes, but I think one that stuck out for me was just remind, reminding myself that the majority of lung cancers, as Jessica mentioned, are primarily upper lobe and specifically right upper lobe. So just something that I'm taking away and for if I just, I think I'm going to now refer to the personal history of the nodule. Going forward, when someone's presenting, I'm going to ask specifically about the nodule history. I love history. it. Nick, something takeaway for our listeners? Yeah, I think pulmonary nodules are difficult at first when you're a fellow because there's a lot of uncertainty in, in the world of guideline-directed therapy and guideline-based therapy. Nodules have a different burn of proof. We don't necessarily have to prove what it is. We just have to make sure of what it isn't. So are we sure it's not cancer? And if we can answer that with a yes, then it, at the end of the day, if the patient is asymptomatic otherwise, it's not overly 
necessary to figure out what that nodule is specifically, as long as we've done our homework and made sure that it's not malignancy. Hmm. That's a really interesting point when you think about it. And I agree. That's how I, when I talk to patients, sometimes they're like, what is this nodule? I'm like, we have like a little mole on your skin. It could just be like that, like something that pops up and we don't worry about it. A little maybe simplistic of an explanation, but your burden of proof is, is different as you're approaching it. Jessica, takeaway for our listeners. I like what Nick said about what you what Nick just said. And I think everybody's different and everybody's body is different. And <clears throat> we have to realize that we have to put it in the context of who they are and really it doesn't make sense that this is cancer or not, or is it something else? Does it fit the rest of the patient? So it's really, it's important to put everybody in their own category. Yeah. Everybody gets their own context. I love that. Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. We really enjoyed this and this was a great session and thank you all for listening. We hope you'll be back in two weeks for our next episode and I hope you're taking care of good patients and good nodules out there. All right. Have a good one. Yeah.